The news continues, so let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. That's such a sweet picture. Oh, it's so nice to see him so happy. And a second time around, it's very cute, John. Seriously. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And we've got a big show for you tonight. You got the White House warning Americans in Ukraine to get out right now. They're warning that Russia could attack its neighbor with bombs and missiles at any moment. The threat is now, quote, immediate. So what exactly is Putin up to? Is this provocation? Is this going to be backed up? We'll have fresh insight ahead from a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor. We also have veteran Olympic broadcaster Bob Costas with his take on Russia's Olympic doping scandal, or shall I say the latest Russian Olympic doping scandal, after the positive drug test of a breakout star of the Beijing Games. So the big question now is... Will the figure skater be allowed to participate in the women's individual competition next week? And we're going to dig into that major lawsuit that you may not have heard about, but it's a big one. And it's against Tesla. Complaints from hundreds, hundreds of workers about open racism at just one California plant. You'll hear from someone who worked there who was awarded already millions in damages. And the fight for justice for the murder of George Floyd, it goes on. A spotlight tonight on the little-talked-about trial of the three officers accused of aiding and abetting Floyd's murder and who were charged with violating his civil rights. A lot to get to on that case. But first, less than 48 hours from the Super Bowl, and the Homeland Security Department is now having to closely monitor the possibility of disruption by protesters who may be aligned with that trucker blockade movement at our Canadian border. And that's threatening to further, by the way, harm our economy. And if you haven't been following this standoff like we should, don't worry. We're going to lay out for you exactly why you need to care about this tonight. It's not just a Canada problem. It's a North America problem, by the way. And it's impacting American jobs. It's impacting American trade and could actually worsen the already difficult U.S. inflation. You know, access to three major border crossings have been cut off by the truckers and those who are, I guess you call them the like-minded demonstrators. And they started out, they started out protesting COVID mandates and restrictions in Canada. But that list of the grievances, it's been growing and growing, and it's grown in the two weeks since all of this started. And now there are concerns that that list of grievances and that convoy could actually form here. In fact, the DHS has warned now in a bulletin that Super Bowl Sunday could be disrupted along with transportation in major U.S. cities. It actually believes that the convoy will potentially begin in California as early as mid-February and arrive in Washington, D.C. as late as mid-March. Translation, that could even impact President Biden's State of the Union address on March 1st. Another convoy to the Capitol area? I don't know that America's ready or prepared or wants that again. And the department had spotted some social media posts that gives instructions on driving from L.A. to Washington, not just the actual path, but I mean screenshots of that road and the maps and how you're going to navigate that convoy. But it also notes that there haven't been any upticks in hotel reservations in the capital region, assuming, of course, you're not talking about people in their trucks as long-haul truckers, but they are saying there's no indication of any planned violence. So that is all very positive to hear. And of course, look, Here in America, we know 
peaceful protest is part of a healthy democracy. And I do emphasize peaceful protest because people have every right to be upset with their government and redress grievances and also be upset by the decisions that have been made by their leaders. But they don't have the right to block and impede the movement of goods, let alone be violent in any way. And people and services along that critical infrastructure, if that's impacted as well, well, we've got questions about how people view those protests, of course. And it's exactly why Ontario's premier lashed out about after this having to declare a state of emergency just today. In fact, he called the demonstration a siege and went on to call it an illegal occupation. And more than that, he's promising severe consequences for those who are participating. And there are also big developments tonight because protesters have opened up one lane on the Ambassador Bridge that connects Detroit to Canada and the largest land border crossing in North America. And a judge has now granted an injunction to give the police more power to end the blockade, power to clear the bridge and even tow vehicles if needed and, of course, logistically able to do so. And by the way, it went into effect just a short while ago. So we're going to watch what happens there and keep you posted about why this really matters. And by the way, around 10,000, around 10,000 commercial vehicles cross the bridge you're looking at each and every day with about $325 million worth of goods. Some of the world's biggest car companies have been shutting down or even reducing production lines because of this here in the U.S. I'm talking about Ford and GM and Chrysler and other automakers. They're having to cut back production, which means that factory workers are losing their shifts and they're losing their paychecks. And it's only further threatening our supply chain if it's allowed to continue. That, according to the CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. Meanwhile, in spite of all that I've just described and the disruption that we're all seeing right now, meanwhile, some on the right and in the right-wing media have been fanning the flames. Fox hosts have actually been cheering for this, if you can believe it. The Canadian truckers are heroes. They are patriots, and they are marching for your freedom and for my freedom. We want those great Canadian truckers to know that We are with them all the way. The tide is officially turning. The freedom movement is growing. Farmers are now joining. This is an amazing scene unfolding with truckers in Canada and the U.S. demanding to end every and all mandates. The question is, how long before protests like this come here? Do we need our own trucker rally to end all of this insanity once and for all? This is amazing. Do you see the way he did that to suggest somehow this was a good thing to happen? And note that's also a correlation, assuming that this is not the amorphous body that it seems to be, where you've got the distinction of the list of grievances all the way down the line and challenges about figuring out just how to end it, because it's going to be one single cause and almost inviting it to come to the United States of America. Now, why I find that particularly odd and you probably have a short-term memory of all these things. It only recently happened, and you might be starting to smell the whiff of hypocrisy here. Because when Black Lives Matters activists blocked traffic on bridges and elsewhere, I remember hearing a very different sentiment on that same network. And now, one of their favorite unlawful tactics 
is to block federal interstates or other major thoroughfares that are used by law-abiding motorists in order to terrorize those people and then post the video on social media. Interesting. I thought that was precisely the behavior that was just praised just moments ago in that soundbite we played. Because if it was wrong, if it was wrong and illegal for BLM protesters to block traffic in the street to them, well, then why is it that you now can't get enough of this Canadian blockade? And I hate to play the game of whataboutism. It bothers me to no end. Oftentimes it's never analogous and people are just pulling out of thin air to have something to be polemic about. But in this case, I want you to imagine Imagine if it were the BLM protesters mounting this kind of economic disruption. I want you to just imagine, or maybe just recall what you just heard being played about what their reaction was then. And this is not to mention all the COVID misinformation and conspiracies that are coming from the fringe right that are actually helping fuel this border mess. And frankly, this is a real concern that there's this movement might actually intensify inside the United States. And so how will all of this get resolved is the million dollar or maybe billion dollar industry question as well. Let's go to the front lines in Canada for the very latest to Glenn McGregor, senior political correspondent with CTV National News, live from the capital of Ottawa. I'm so glad you're here to talk about this because I gotta tell you, when we're hearing about this and watching it, People here stateside should know and hopefully realize this impacts the U.S. and it impacts all of North America. What are you seeing there? Yeah, the impact is enormous for that trade that flows back and forth between Canada and U.S., particularly at the, the border crossing, the Ambassador Bridge that connects Windsor, Ontario to Detroit, Michigan. Uh, as you said in your introduction, it's crucial to the auto industry. Canada and the U.S. auto industries are extremely integrated and they're just-in-time delivery businesses. So if parts don't arrive uh, right when they're supposed to, the assembly lines stop and they have to sometimes uh, shut down shifts. Auto workers lose work and it's a bad situation. And then there's all the spin-off effects for the other companies that are associated with the auto industry. So it's an enormous economic problem uh, in addition to being kind of a cultural problem and, and d dealing with this uprising that first started here in Ottawa. The, the truckers have been here for about two weeks, Laura, and uh, the police haven't really figured out how to get them to leave, mm. but the police responded much more quickly in Windsor and Detroit because of the economic effects of it. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the premier of the province, uh, Doug Ford, went and declared an emergency today, got injunctions, and we're just waiting tonight to see exactly when police are gonna move in because there was a 7 p.m. Eastern time cutoff for that injunction. And those truckers are supposed to be off the bridge, opening it up to traffic again. So far, that hasn't happened. And we're waiting to see uh, exactly when tonight uh, or tomorrow that police uh, actually move in and start uh, making arrests if necessary and towing trucks away. And here we are two hours after that 7 p.m. East, right? And thinking about what the consequences will right. be. And obviously, you know, the idea of trying to have a peaceful protest does not seem to be obviously the heart of the issue. It's the mannerism. It's the fact that it's not um, this peaceful. It's, it's disruptive in so many ways. Have they lost? At some point in time, I right. understand there was some level of empathy or some level of, of, um, of sort of hurrah right. that was happening locally. But that all turned. Where do people stand now locally on this issue? Are they in support of a more of a police presence and ending this more than ever before? 
Yeah, here in Ottawa, which you know our city has been been uh, all the streets are jammed. Uh, horns were blowing uh, late into the night up until the, uh, a young 21 year old woman who lived downtown went and got an injunction on her own to stop the horns. But it's still very disruptive. I mean, the, the scenes are kind of chaotic. There's diesel fumes everywhere. The truckers gun their engines right in front of the parliament buildings. Right, this is our seat of government, kind of equivalent to your Capitol Hill. So if you imagine had that scene going on there. Uh, it's been likened to kind of. Uh, maybe a Buffalo Bills tailgate party meets Mad Max. It's a very strange, surreal scene to see in uh, this city. The residents here are absolutely sick of it. Uh, the police, though, are really apprehensive about moving in because a lot of the truckers and about 25% of the big rigs police estimate have children living in them. So they have the, the, some of the, the protesters have set up bouncy castles, hay bales for the kids to play on. There's games. Uh, and But the concern uh, among police is that some of the trucks might also have firearms in them, and they're they're very nervous about moving in to start making arrests and towing vehicles away if there is going to be uh, a potential for violence. So they are kind of stuck, and they <sighs> haven't quite figured out uh, what what they're going to do about this. Yeah. Uh, even though it is right now a very small group, at one point it was about eighteen thousand people at its height here in Ottawa, much smaller than some of the estimates going around in uh, international media as high as half a million, never got that yeah. close. Uh, but the group that's left is very is very small and determined. To I got it. For. I mean, Glenn, to think about the idea of children being there now and the idea of what it would be like if someone's not going to respect the piece of paper of the injunction or the presence of the police. Obviously, mm -hmm. there is an aversion to wanting to abide by what the government is saying in the first instance. And so I, I really hope that this remains peaceful and that there can be a conclusion. Glenn McGregor, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. You know, as I mentioned, there are concerns about this coming to the U.S. This is not just an issue happening in Canada. We cannot lose sight of the fact that obviously what happens in one area of North America obviously comes down here as well. And we're already seeing this. And as soon as even this weekend where we have the Super Bowl here in the States, we know that this might actually impact that as well. I want to bring in former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, on this issue. Andrew McCabe, nice seeing you. Did you see, I, I, every time I talk to you, though, it's always an issue that's happening. It's an utmost security issue. So hopefully one day you and I can have a conversation that's far more lighthearted, my friend. But for now, here we are again. And we don't, we know in the U.S. the impact of maybe a convoy of sorts converging on a government structure or even the capital in the city. What are you hearing right now in terms of how this might be coming and hitting very close to home? Well, Laura, you know, I think that the Department of Homeland Security did the right thing about getting this uh, bulletin out to bring awareness in the law enforcement community to this issue, and particularly for those places that are not, you know, Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles or New York, uh, but far-flung places that might also be targeted by this sort of activity. I, I honestly, I'm less worried about the Super Bowl in Los Angeles this weekend because you have a massive police presence there, a very well-developed law enforcement uh, infrastructure already engaged to secure this uh, high-profile event, the Super Bowl, that many, many people will attend or at least, you know, be in the area. So they certainly have the resources to handle it. I think uh, the concern is the further out predictions of convoys deep into March that may, you know, end up in places that aren't as well prepared. 
It's true. And again, there are no, I mean, you have places like in Paris, they've already deployed areas about this New Zealand, other people in London have taken time to sort of try to counteract this. But you're right, going into March, and again, we're talking about the ideas of having these bulletins come out. Is the chatter that people are hearing online, will it mean that we're better prepared, perhaps, to address it than what happened in Canada? That's the concern here in the States. Well, I hope so, right? I mean, we've certainly had our own experiences uh, within the last year, speaking specifically of January 6th, of not taking those warnings that were readily available on social media and in open source uh, media, not taking those warnings seriously. So I would bet that the FBI and DHS and uh, other entities are, are listening to those threads and trying to get a sense of where this sentiment is right now. Uh, and certainly if, you know, a convoy of thousands of trucks begins to assemble across the United States, that's not going to be done uh, in secret. You know, that'll be seen and, uh, you know, hopefully law enforcement will be able to prepare for uh, the location where wherever that, that might be delivered. But I think it's really important to notice that Law enforcement is straddling a very delicate balance here, right? There is a, this country is founded upon the uh, idea that we are all entitled to protest, to express our anger with government, but we're not entitled to do that in an unlawful way that causes security concerns for others or disrupts the economy, it prevents people from working. So it's a very delicate situation uh, that I think uh, folks are probably planning for as we speak. And one that becomes evergreen more and more, talking about all the controversies about the First Amendment and being able to redress grievances, but not like this. Andy McCabe, thank you. Thanks. Look, from one international crisis to another, the U.S. says the threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine is now immediate and is warning Americans to get out right now. Is Putin really planning to attack? We'll talk to former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, next. There are increasing fears now that Russian troops amassed on the Ukrainian border now appear actually ready to move. You see right there, I mean, sparking warnings from the White House all the way to the Pentagon. Yes, it is an urgent message because we are in an urgent situation. We're in a window uh, when an invasion could begin at any time. At any time. Well, the Pentagon announcing another 3,000 troops are now heading for Poland. Now, we know the president held a call with NATO and world leaders this morning. And the top U.S. general held a series of calls with his Russian counterpart and also NATO allies. And President Biden and French President Macron are scheduled to have separate calls with Vladimir Putin tomorrow. Now, the White House is saying that Americans should leave Ukraine in the next 48 hours while they still can. And they're saying there will not be a military evacuation of U.S. citizens. In sharp contrast, by the way, to what we saw just a couple months ago with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let's bring in the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor. Ambassador, thank you for being here tonight. There's just so much to get to. And I want to start with that idea that they're saying that it could be an immediate invasion, telling Americans to get out. There's no way to get them out from a military evacuation. Obviously, they are really sounding the alarm. So the question is, you know, Putin has done something like this before. Is he being a provocateur or is there some meat on the bone this time? Well, probably both, Laura. Um, he's clearly being a provocateur. 
Mr. Putin is trying to bully, is trying to intimidate President Zelensky of Ukraine and probably President Biden uh, as well. He wants, President Putin wants to try to rattle this saber to bring all these forces to the border of Ukraine and, and intimidate President Zelensky into caving, into compromising uh, his own security, his own independence, his own sovereignty. And he's trying, and Putin is trying to bully the president to do the same thing. So there is, it's clearly a provocateur. He can do it. This is, bluffing is when you have a pair of deuces. Uh, he's got aces. He can clearly move in. Putin can clearly attack. We, we hear that all the time. We know that's true. But he is so far has not decided to. So far, Laura, he has has hesitated and yeah. has been willing to negotiate or at least have conversations with people as they have as they have come through Moscow. Well, to extend that analogy of poker, I mean, you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Sometimes, is there an off ramp for Putin in this regard right now? I mean, obviously, this is a lot of gamesmanship, and although we are learning that perhaps there is, as you mentioned, the idea of the ability to have a force go in with enough force and presence that this is not a bluff. But is there a way out or are we on a track and a path that is irreversible? It's not irreversible. There is a way out. President Biden, President Zelensky need to hold him, need to stare him down. Uh, President Putin may blink. And if he blinks, then he could tell he could tell the Russian people that he never intended to invade anyway. He said that many times. He said, I'm, I've never intended to invade, invade Ukraine. And or he could also tell the, the Russian people that he finally got the Americans to take his security demands seriously. He, he can say that mm-hmm. he's been trying to, to make the Americans listen to him um, and, and take it seriously about his concerns about missiles in Ukraine or, or B-52 bombers flying too close to the Russian border. He can say that up until now, the Americans never took that seriously, but he can say now they are. He, he can say that now there's, the Americans are going to sit down with me, with President Putin, and they're going to negotiate an agreement or several agreements that mean that they'll never put missiles in Ukraine or that they won't fly their, their B-52 bombers close to, close to our borders. He can say that he has won. He has forced the Americans to the table to negotiate something that will be good. We know it'll be good for both sides, but he could say it'd be good for Russia. Well, what a scheme to just try to save face. And again, goes back to the notion of being a provocateur, the risks to lives, the risks to livelihoods and all the international tension that accompanies it. You know, it's a really astounding time. Ambassador Bill Taylor, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. And, you know, coming up, California is suing Tesla. They're citing hundreds, hundreds of racism complaints at one of the automatic manufacturer's plants. So what's Tesla's defense? Is there a culture of discrimination at this plant? We're going to bring in a former worker who sued Tesla and won next. Well, a California civil rights agency is now suing Tesla. This in the wake of hundreds hundreds of racism complaints from workers at its Fremont factory. In addition to allegations that black workers face discrimination in job assignments and discipline and pay and promotion, the lawsuit states, quote, Tesla, ha- Tesla production leads, supervisors and managers 
constantly used the N-word and other racial slurs to refer to black workers. Swastikas, KKK, the N-word, and other racist writing are etched onto walls of restrooms, restroom stalls, lunch tables, and even factory machinery. Because the factory was racially segregated, Tesla workers referred to the areas where many black and or African Americans worked as the porch monkey station and referred to the Tesla factory as the slave ship or the plantation, where Tesla's production leads crack the whip. One black worker heard these racial slurs as often as 50 to 100 times a day. And this, by the way, as shocking and appalling as the allegations are, this is just the latest in a series of racial complaints against Tesla. Just last week, a black woman who worked at another plant sued the company, alleging abuse, quote, reminiscent of the Jim Crow era. While this past October, a jury awarded a former worker at the Fremont factory more than $136 million after finding that he was the subject of a racially hostile workplace. Now, his name is Owen Diaz, and he joins me now. Sir, I'm glad you're here, but I got to tell you, when I read about this and I'm hearing about the experience and your own trial in this issue, it is really shocking to think that this could happen once, let alone a series of things going on. What is your reaction now that you're learning about this new lawsuit based on hundreds of different allegations, sir? Well, my reaction is it's about time. You know, uh, unfortunately, it took for me to win this verdict. It took a man to be murdered in the factory or on the factory grounds. It took a lot of other African-Americans to be discriminated against. And it took countless of women to be sexually harassed before the state even stepped in. You know, I'm not sure of what you're referencing in terms of the murder. And if that's the case, I can't imagine how this has gone unchecked before now. If that allegation is true, I, I'm curious about what that case involved. And I want to look into that. And I, I think about this and the ideas of the ways in which Tesla has even reacted to this, because I, I hope you can shed some light based on your experience. I understand that of your son's experience as well, um, working at that facility. And what they said was that they called it misguided. This lawsuit was misguided, not yours, but the one that was more recent, saying Tesla has always disciplined and terminated employees who engage in misconduct, including those who use racial slurs or harass others in different ways. This lawsuit is both unfair and counterproductive, especially because the allegations focus on events from years ago. But then when I hear this and read this, then I look back to an email sent to workers back in 2017 by, of course, the face of Tesla, Elon Musk, who is the CEO. And he warned against people um, being, quote, a huge jerk to members of an historically less represented group. At the same time, though, he wrote, if someone is a jerk to you, but sincerely apologizes, it is important to be thick-skinned and accept that apology. This coming from the New York Times reporting. Um, Mr. Diaz, I hear that and read that and say, if that's the position of the CEO, that if someone can apologize, I don't know how you apologize for swastikas, racial epithets, having it ingrained and um, imprinted in the factory. What is your reaction to the overall culture that you experienced? 
Well, first of all, let's just look at that statement. You know, that statement right there said I should be thick skinned. To be in thick skinned right there is saying something racially, you know, historically racial. So, you know, they're taking um leadership from 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 straight up at the top. Even, you know, my experience, I want to say let let it be less about my experience and let it be more about the workers that's going through what they're going through right now. You know, because it's like my experience is over with. I was able to move on, but we still have workers that's there. You know, I've been saying and I'm gonna keep saying, you know what, I'm not the only one that said anything. It was it was DeWitt Lambert was the first one that sounded the bell. You know, DeWitt Lambert took this um took took it to, to took it to arbitration. See, that's one of the things that these billion dollar companies are doing. They're they're using arbitration effectively to uh take the employees into a private judicial system. When you do that, you know, it's effectively me crying to an employee of Tesla, you know, because they're the ones that retain these arbitrators. So you felt like you never had a fair chance to be able to have the human resource department help you. I would note your case, I think, is pending appeal because of the punitive damages that were awarded. But of course, it sends a heck of a message to Tesla. And here, this is the California Civil Rights Agency that is now suing Tesla based on hundreds of complaints. Owen Diaz, I'm so sorry to hear about the experience that you have endured. Thank you for your time. We'll follow the story. You know, I really appreciate it. And I'll just say, I just hope that the state of California calls me as a witness because mm. I, I definitely want to continue this. I have a funny feeling you are top of mind, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, I want to turn now to an Olympic-sized controversy ahead. A Russian teenage figure skater who led her team to gold this week in Beijing, well, she's now at the center of a giant doping scandal. Should she be allowed to still compete and have this shadow overhead? And by the way, who is at fault here? Well, veteran Olympics broadcaster Bob Costas is going to weigh in next. New athlete, old issues. Because once again, an athlete from Russia is wrapped up in a doping scandal. A gold medal won already by the Russian Olympic Committee's figure skating team is now in question after a 15-year-old Kamila Valieva tested positive for a banned substance prior to the Olympics. The teen, who became the first female to land a quad at the Games, is now awaiting a decision on whether she'll even be allowed to participate in the individual competition next week, where, by the way, she's been favored, obviously, to win the gold. Here to talk about it, Bob Costas. Bob, I'm so glad you're here. And as I said, look, Mm -hmm. the idea of yet another Russian doping scandal. I mean, there are second chances, but what number are we on now and what should they be on? Incalculable. And we should be at an end, but... The IOC has enriched and indulged Russia as they are enriching and indulging China right now. It should be said that today the IOC came out and said flatly for once, flatly, the Russians are wrong if in fact they're involved in this. And we believe that Valieva should not be able to compete 
on Tuesday. This is a 15-year-old girl, remarkably talented. She's exploited and a victim in this. The Court of Arbitration for Sport will make a final determination prior to uh, the beginning of her individual competition on Tuesday, Beijing time. But it is reasonable to assume, given the long history you've mentioned, Laura, going all the way back to the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s and maybe even before that, and now on to present-day Russia, state-sponsored doping, sophisticated state-sponsored doping, where the athletes have basically two choices, go along with it and be able to compete internationally, or you're gone. I'm not necessarily saying that they're locked up or something that, that draconian, but you're not going to compete for Mother Russia under those circumstances. And going back recently to 2014 in Sochi, here are the Russians and Vladimir Putin hosting the Winter Olympics. And right under the noses of the IOC, they switch drug samples. It's sort of this spy versus spy thing, like in the old Mad Magazine, with a hole in the wall and the sample goes out through one hole and the clean sample comes back out through the other. And this is only discovered after the fact. Now, Russian athletes are allowed to compete. You could say it was just a slap on the wrist. There's no Russian national anthem. There's no Russian flag. It's the ROC, the Russian Olympic Committee. So Valieva and other Russian athletes are, com are competing under that banner. But we'll have to see whether Valieva is allowed to continue. And, of course, what strikes me, this is a 15-year-old. You're talking about state-sponsored doping yes. as the allegation, the idea of the exploitation. I mean, how do you judge who's at fault here? Because, of course, you're thinking about a competitive athlete, and that's the choice, and you already have the idea of the slaps on the wrist. I mean, what do you think of it to the fairness in terms of letting her compete? Is it the message to send, look, even exploitation or not, it will only stop the state sponsorship if there are actual consequences, even if it means somebody caught in the middle gets banned. Yeah, and that could be one of the consequences if the IOC and if the Court of Arbitration for Sport have enough backbone here, along with WADA, the World Anti-Doping Association, if collectively they have enough backbone to do it, then perhaps for the time being, this poor 15-year-old girl or unfortunate 15-year-old girl will be the victim, but she could continue her career subsequently. Uh, she tested positive around Christmas time, um, and the Russians apparently didn't take note of it. They pushed her forward toward the Olympics. What's curious, as a side note about this, as best we can understand, the drug in question is generally, for medicinal purposes, prescribed to older people who have heart problems like angina. The only possibility, and there's even some dispute about this among people who are uh, very expert in sports medicine, the only possible advantage would be increased efficiency uh, in terms of oxygen intake for endurance athletes like long-distance runners, cyclists, cross-country skiers at the Olympics. But the counter to that is if you're taking even a 15-year-old girl and you're putting her through grueling training sessions four or five hours at a time, then endurance would become a factor. And perhaps you're looking for only the tiniest of edges when it comes to competitions that are judged through a very, a very minute lens or other aspects of the Olympics come down to tenths or hundredths of, mm -hmm. of a second. Perhaps looking for any edge, I guess it's plausible. But this particular drug does not appear on its face to be a performance-enhancing drug. And yet... It could cost not only her performance, but also the notion that, yet again, 
the shadow overhanging all of the Olympics, this idea of doping. And we've seen this movie before, Bob. You would think that they'd be able to figure out a way to have enough of a deterrence, enough of a sanction that is not just a symbolic one. But we'll see what happens. Bob Costas, as always, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Laura. Uh, former police officer Derek Chauvin. Remember him? You do. He's the one convicted of murdering George Floyd. And you might also remember that his trial got lots of coverage. But now the three other officers accused of failing to stop that murder, they're also on trial. And it's undercovered. I think the outcome could have a bigger impact, frankly, on the future of policing than even the Derek Chauvin trial. And I'll explain why next. So for those of you who believe that justice was fully served with Derek Chauvin's conviction, I'm here to tell you that it's not over yet. Remember, there were three other officers at the scene the day Chauvin fatally knelt on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. Now, two of them helped Chauvin hold Mr. Floyd down, while another stood by to keep the crowd at bay. Well, over the past two weeks, these three former officers have been on trial for violating his civil rights. And I know it's hard to know what's happening when there isn't wall-to-wall coverage like there was for the Derek Chauvin trial, especially because these proceedings are not being televised, as, by the way, is the norm for a federal courtroom, and these are federal charges. But it doesn't mean that this trial is any less important. And in fact, well, the way I see it, it could be the most impactful thing on the future of policing, maybe even more so than Chauvin's conviction. Here's why. So prosecutors say these officers knew through their training that George Floyd needed help, that they knew that as Floyd's cries for help stopped because he stopped breathing, that they had a duty to intervene and render aid, regardless of the depraved actions of their senior officer, Derek Chauvin. And standing by on crowd control does not excuse inaction either. So the idea that the officers may be held accountable for not reining in colleagues when they do the wrong thing is something, frankly, we haven't seen much of before. And frankly, it could make all the difference in future police incidents. For more on this, I want to bring in Charles Ramsey, who led police departments in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. Commissioner Ramsey, I'm so glad you're here tonight and we're covering this because it's so important. Obviously, so many officers could distinguish themselves, say, from Derek Chauvin and say, that's not who we are. It's not what we do. But you have a number of officers who might find themselves in the position of watching what their fellow officers are doing and wondering if they will be held accountable. Do you see it the same way about this being a, a really important impact on how other officers may hold one another accountable? There's no question it's important and it's going to have a tremendous impact on policing. You know, for the past several years, there's been more and more focus on this duty to intervene uh, through various trainings. One started in New Orleans called EPIC, uh, Ethical Policing is Courageous, and it's been modified a bit uh, from uh, Georgetown Law. ABLE, uh, I think it stands for Active Bystander for Law Enforcement, but there's more and more training now that if you see something like that taking place, you have an obligation to intervene to stop it. And I think the George Floyd situation is the perfect example of why that should take place. Now, I know there'll be a lot of arguments that two of them were rookies, uh, the third one was on crowd control, but there's no excuse for not intervening over a nine and a half minute period. 
And of course, we know from trial testimony that they actually did not inform the person who was interviewing them about the loss of consciousness immediately or the ideas of not knowing what the results of the CPR being failed were. But also, it speaks this notion of the blue code of silence here, right? Because what you're articulating in a way, Commissioner, is the idea of people seeing something and saying something, right? What is expected of the average person to see something, say something, report. And that sort of no snitch mentality that really undergirds that seems to apply sometimes to officers. Is there a way to either incentivize the idea of saying something, seeing something, saying something, even among the ranks? Well, you definitely have to encourage it. And that happens not only at the uh, police officer level, but all through the organization. There does need to be a culture shift. But I think it's also important to remember that this whole notion of not telling on a colleague is not limited to policing. It happens in all professions, or at least the majority of professions. I mean, how many lawyers call the bar and turn in other lawyers if they see something unethical, or doctors turn in other doctors if they don't think they're properly treating a patient? I mean, so we got to get over that and really, really do and really focus on doing the right thing. And if you see someone who's not doing the right thing, you do have a duty to intervene and you should be applauded and rewarded for it. And of course, one way to change the culture, I mean, obviously in America, litigation, deterrence, having the actual uh, precedent like this, perhaps. Charles Ramsey, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back. Well, that's it for us tonight. I'll be back next week. Don Lemon tonight with Don Lemon starts right now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.